Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is a message brought to our church by one of the men of Moses Lake Baptist Church. We hope that it is a blessing to you, and we would love to hear how God used it in your life. Well, tonight we're going to focus on how to foolproof your life. And um, I'm sure many of you have made a foolish decision in your life at some point. I certainly have. Uh, I can't even number the amount of times I've acted foolishly. And uh, if you're honest, I'm sure that all of you have some point you can remember too. Uh, Maybe it was that test that you needed to study for in school. But instead you thought, hey, I know the material, I know the stuff, there's nothing here that uh, I need to study for. And then it turned out you really didn't know as much as you thought, and you got a bad grade or maybe even failed that test. And for some of us, maybe that foolishness was a bad investment. Uh, Maybe it was taking the wrong job. Uh, Maybe it was the choice to follow a temptation rather than to follow after righteousness. Maybe it was to purchase something that you shouldn't have, Or maybe for some, it was a relationship that turned out to be toxic. Well, I want to start off just with a, there's lots of foolish stories I have. There are only some that are appropriate for this setting. Uh, But I want to tell a story of, of a time I was foolish. And it was back in high school when many of our foolish stories occur. And it was um, a weekend night and I was with uh, Christy. She wasn't Um, my wife at the time, but her and three of her friends, and we were on a car and got into my little Toyota Corolla and headed down the street to Winco. It's time for a midnight snack, and uh, this night was one stormy night. Lots of rain in uh, Salem, Oregon. You imagine they always get a lot of rain, but uh, with that rain came a lot of wind, and so as we arrived in the Winco parking lot there, it was pretty barren at 1130 at night, not much around, But what I did catch in the corner of my eye would raise some excitement. And this in the corner of my eye was a a, a shopping cart driven by the wind through the parking lot. And of course, what any young man would do would try to show off at this point, right? So what can we do? Well, I have a little Toyota Corolla in my hands, two hands on the steering wheel, two words that come out of my mouth that say, you're mine, and a foot that hits the gas pedal. So I'm cruising towards this shopping cart that's making its way across the parking lot, and uh, just in time, I'm thinking, oh, I'll just stop, scare, scare the girls a little bit. Well, slam on that uh, brake pedal, and those tires did not stop me where I needed them to. So as that shopping cart's going, bam, front grill hits that shopping cart, and it's like a slow motion in the movie. You just see that shopping cart kind of float through the air sideways as it lands and skids across the pavement in front of you. And all that's left is this little wheel turning up on its side. And I, well, it's not quite what I thought I was going to do. So, uh, yeah, many foolish times in my life. But um, I've, I've obviously passed some of that foolishness on to my children. I'm sure some of you can relate to this. But, you know, one of the things I try to do with my, my children is teach them what God's word has to say when they do something foolish. And I often take them aside. Um, Usually I'll call them to my room. I'll shut the door, have them sit on the side of the bed with me. And I'll find a couple verses in the Bible that shows them maybe what their actions should be. And I want for them to understand the expectations that I have for them are the same expectations that God has for them. 
And uh, on numerous occasions, those conversations has led us to the book of Proverbs. And for example, when, when I remember one of our children believed that he was right and mom and dad were wrong. That can't be, right? And uh, I just remember we read a verse such as Proverbs twelve fifteen. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. Well, that's when I look the child in the face and say, quit being foolish, right? And so I, I hope that in those moments, uh, looking at God's word, that they would learn um, to, to follow God's word and God would speak into their hearts, Well, whether it's a choice that you made or a choice that your child has made that's been foolish, unfortunately, we cannot go back and change those decisions. But what we can do is develop the kind of wisdom that we need that in the future we would make better decisions um, and what I would call foolproof decisions for the future. And that's what we're going to discuss tonight, how we can foolproof our lives. Before we get any further, let's go ahead and just open here in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, this ability to just freely gather and to worship your name. And Father, just to uh, lift up uh, praises unto you. And Father, as we just open your word here, I pray that you would uh, just use your spirit to speak through me. Lord, that you would just give me uh, the words um, just to say, and Lord, that they would make sense tonight. Father, we uh, just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I think one of the ways that many people turn to to uh, really combat foolishness is to read books. Any book readers in here? All right, a few of you. That is foolish. Um, <laughs> I think uh, reading is a long-standing way that people over the ages have increased their knowledge, right? And there are books that are written to help people with their careers, uh, books to help with uh, marriages, uh, books that teach you how to garden, how to hunt, books on history. So hopefully you don't repeat some of those things in history. Uh, I think it'd be hard to find a book that was written um, or a topic that a book hasn't been written about, right? I think there's a lot, a lot of books that have been written. I'll give you one of the things during the, world, uh, during the War of 1812, a uh, war between England and America. So British had invaded Washington, D.C., had lit most of the city, burned it down to the ground. What was one of those buildings that got burned down was the Library of Congress. And the Library of Congress at that time had about 30,000 books Uh, in the library. Well, after the the war was over, the decision was made, hey, we need to rebuild the Library of Congress. And Congress purchased Thomas Jefferson's personal library. 6,487 books was owned by Thomas Jefferson. So there's nearly 6,500 books. That's a lot of books for one man to own. And in comparison, if you think, our, our average library here in America has about ten to 15,000 books on its shelf. But that's a lot of books. Put into comparison, there was a, na- a man named Abdul Qasim Ismail, and he lived in the 10th century, and he was the Grand Vizier of Persia. And he was a, known as a wealthy man, an, an educated man. He was said to have 117,000 volumes. And that's more likely scrolls, not the bound books that we have today, but 117,000. Abdul loved his books. And so much so when he traveled, and he traveled a lot, uh, he never parted with his scrolls. He always took that with him. 
But you think, well, how did he do that? Well, he took about 400 camels, taught them all how to stay in alphabetical order, loaded those scrolls upon the camels, and everywhere he went, he could go and retrieve the scroll or request the reading that he wished at that moment's notice. Well, I think down through the ages, knowledge and wisdom has been highly prized to civilized men. And the mark of wisdom for many people is the books that they possess. And if I measure my wisdom to that ruler, I'll just say to you, I'm officially a dunce, all right? But aren't you thankful? I'm, I'm so glad that God has written the only book that we need in our lives to become wise, and that's the Bible. You know, we have five books of the Bible specifically that are considered wisdom books. You have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And if we look in the, the book of Proverbs, we find a collection of short sayings. And these Proverbs, uh, they distinguish foolishness from wisdom. And Proverbs, uh, as you guys are probably aware, aren't just unique to the Bible. Uh, there's a lot of Proverbs found around the world. It's really a Proverbs, just a, a short, pithy saying that offers some type of advice um, or some general truth to it, right? So here's some worldly Proverbs that you may enjoy. Uh, he who runs in front of a car gets tired. He who runs behind a, t- a car gets exhausted. Experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. Eat a small toad in the morning, and it will be the worst thing you do all day. And I love this one. Keep the dream alive. Hit the snooze button. All right? I think there's many proverbs that are written even in the form of riddles. Um, and those riddles cause us to think about the deep things in life, the deep meetings. And once again, these types of Proverbs are not unique to just the Bible. Some of them might be something like, if all the world is a stage, where is the audience sitting? If you ate pasta and antipasta, would you still be hungry? If you try to fail yet succeed, which have you done? Some things that make your brain hurt. For all you book lovers out here, you're loving this. For people like me, it's hurting a little bit. But tonight, I want to look a little bit at Solomon. Now, if I were to say the name Solomon, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Wisdom, right? So that's right, because wisdom, or Solomon, was so wise in his day um, and has continued uh, into history to be uh, associated with wisdom. You see, Solomon's wisdom wasn't associated with the number of books that he owned, If we look uh, to 1 Kings 4.32, it says, and he spake 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. You see, uh, Solomon, he he wrote and spoke about plant life from the cedars of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Uh, 1 Kings 4.32-34, part of that says, and there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. Amongst uh, amongst those people that came to saw after Solomon's wisdom was a particular queen. Do you guys remember the queen's name? Yeah, the queen of Sheba. And that queen of Sheba, she traveled nearly 1,500 miles to present Solomon with gifts and to ask him some hard questions really to to discover just how wise uh, he was. 
and she was shocked by how wise he was. And it, it gives us an account of that in Second Chronicles 9.6, uh, where it says, Howbeit, I believed not their words until I came, and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the one half of the greatness of thy wisdom was not told me, for thou exceedest the fame that I heard. Before we go any further, if you guys want, we're going to be in uh, 1 Kings 3 here. If you want to turn your Bibles, otherwise I'll have it here on the screen. 1 Kings 3. I want to look at who gave Solomon his wisdom. I think we can pretty easily say in this setting that that wisdom was from God. I want to look at that here in 1 Kings 3, starting in verse 5. We read this. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, thou hast shown unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept from him his great kindness or kept for him his great kindness. And thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne And it is this day. And now, O Lord, my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David, my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go in or come out. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked for riches for thyself, nor hast you asked for the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise unto thee. And I also have given thee which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall be not be any among the kings like thee all thy days. You see, God was pleased that Solomon preferred wisdom over wealth and honor. In fact, God was so pleased with what he had asked for. Uh, We see here in the scripture that God actually gave him all three things. So it's a bit odd as as you read uh, a little bit later. So uh, as you go into the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is writing in Ecclesiastes. He's, He's writing here in chapter one, verse 17. He said, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. So you go from Solomon asking God, hey, God, just give me some wisdom to uh, rule over your people to know good from bad. And then he writes here in Ecclesiastes that, you know, with wisdom comes much grief. It's almost this burden to have wisdom. And he continues in Ecclesiastes 2.15 saying, then said I in my heart as happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. 
So he's saying, hey, having this wisdom, uh, it's, it, there's almost a burden to it. It's vanity having it. And uh, after spending some great deal, a deal of time going through Ecclesiastes and, and uh, focusing on the shortcoming of wisdom, Solomon writes, therefore, I hated life. It's really uplifting. It makes me want to go to God and say, hey, God, give me some wisdom. Like, this sounds great. Um, but I want to look at, you know, what is wisdom? And for all of you wise guys in the room, you're thinking, duh, we know what wisdom is. But just let me do this here for a second. So Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, um, this is Solomon writing. He said, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the, the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment and equity, to give um, subtly to the simple, to the young man knowledge and uh, discretion. A wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. To understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Well, here's how we can kind of rephrase what Solomon is saying here. He's saying, I begin to foolproof my life when I fear the Lord. In verse 7, we learn that from God's perspective, there are two types of people. There are those people who live wisely and those who live as fools. And because that, that concept of fool is different uh, in the Bible than it is for us, if we look at the, the English word fool, we find that word listed in Proverbs a little over 70 times. And, uh, but there are actually three different underlying Hebrew words that help us understand exactly what it means to be a fool. Here in verse 7 that we see, uh, Solomon uses the Hebrew word evil. And this word describes someone who's morally deficient or corrupt or acts with intentional disregard for what he knows to be true. This person will do whatever he thinks he can get away with. I was kind of thinking about this. Well, what kind of thing can we equate this to? I, I really think this is someone who really just acts like a child, right? Like, hey, what can I hide? What can I get away with? I know what's right, but we're going to kind of push the bounds, right? The other common used word in Proverbs is kisil. And this word describes someone who is simply ignorant of the moral demands of God. So for this person, they can still be awakened um, to the sense of, of being disobedient. They're not aware of that. They're not aware of what those standards are. And this I would really kind of equate to maybe someone who doesn't know the Lord, right? Someone who... Um, we may think of uh, an unbeliever, someone who doesn't understand what God's, um, God wants from us. And then there's the third Hebrew word that's used for fool. This one isn't as frequent as the other two, but Paul uses this word nabal. And that word describes someone who is insensitive to the consequences of his actions. You might, that name might ring true for some of, or ring familiar for some of you. Um, there was a man named Nabal who was struck dead by God because of his opposition to David. And this word fool is really to think about someone who is acting like a rebel, right? Hey, I don't care what goes on. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do, right? So taking those ideas into consideration, we could define what a fool looks like like this. A fool is any person who rejects God's ways. 
right? A fool is any person who rejects God's ways. Based on that definition of a fool, I think we can start to figure out, well, what does wisdom mean? We already know that a wise person lives in the opposite way of someone who lives as a fool. And however, if we look at the the Hebrew concept of wisdom, it's a lot different than how we in the Western culture would view wisdom. See, in Proverbs, Solomon uses some different synonyms to describe wisdom. If you see as he's writing these words that say wisdom or understanding or knowledge, they're just synonyms. synonyms. They're like words. And in our English language, we have different meanings for these words. But in, in Hebrew, they're really just different aspects of what wisdom means. In Proverbs 9.10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Notice there that you have the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, whereas if we go back to Proverbs 1.7 that we are looking at, it says it is the beginning of knowledge. Again, those words are just attributing to wisdom like words. So we need to understand that this, the Hebrew idea around wisdom is more than just knowing, right? It's, it's an experiential rather than an intellectual. And that, that same Hebrew word that's translated wisdom um, in Proverbs is actually translated skill throughout the book of Exodus, And that skill describes men and women who worked on the tabernacle and its furnishings. Let me give you an example of that. In Exodus 35, 35, it says, Them hath he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of... Let me start over there. That was bad. Then hath he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of work of the engraver of the cunning workmen of the embroiderer in blue and in purple and scarlet and fine linen and of the weaver... even of them that do any work and of those who devise cunning work. You see, here in our Western ideas of wisdom, we, we typically associate that with a cognitive ability, right? So we're more apt to think that wisdom comes through like a wise philosopher or someone who, who says wise things. Rather, when we look at God's word, we can see that there's also those terms are associated with different manual labor, people who may, you know, pound nails or hang sheetrock or lay tiles. That Hebrew word encompasses both of those. And that means that wisdom is not just limited uh, to what we might think of as the spiritual, but it's also uh, talking about secular things like our schooling and our hobbies and our jobs. And God wants us to exercise wisdom in every area of our life. He cares about whether we're a good student. He cares about whether you're a good wife or a good mother, uh, a good electrical engineer, a good contractor, a good banker. He cares about those things. He cares about our finances. Believe it or not, I believe God cares about what we watch on TV, what we put into our lives, and that his desire would be that we would exercise wisdom in every area of our life because he knows what is best for us. So that, with that in mind, we can ask, okay, well, we know what wisdom is. What's biblical wisdom? It's pretty simple. It is just God-enabled knowledge for living. So when Solomon penned the Proverbs, he first 
tackled this subject of finding wisdom. And then he urged his son to find that wisdom almost as if a miner would go find silver or if a man would go hunt for his treasure. That same urgency, that same hard work, that same persistence um, is, is what that, that word is talking about. And, and both are involved some um, you know, some frightening moments maybe that if the job's completed or there's some hard things involved in it, but at the end, what, what matters is those rewards of the wisdom are worth the work. You know, I'm not gonna quote all the, the Bible passages um, on wisdom, but I think there's a lot of benefits and advantages that we see through God's word um, for having wisdom. If you have God's kind of wisdom, you learn to be peaceful, gentle, full of mercy, and sincere. And because of that, even your enemies will be at peace with you. If you have God's kind of wisdom, you learn to fear God and shun evil. And because of that, you tend to avoid physical danger and harm. If you have God's kind of wisdom, you learn to give good advice and help others in their wise decisions. And because of that, people want your advice and want your opinions. Now, that's God's kind of wisdom that we're talking about here. But how do we actually do that in practical terms? How do we develop that kind of wisdom? Well, I think Job asked the same question. How do I get it? In Job 28, 12, it says, but where can wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? You know, if you look at the poetic words of the book of Job, he looked through the land, he looked through the sea, he looked through the marketplace, and, he, and it says, and it cannot be bought with the finest gold. Job said, neither shall silver be weighted for the price thereof. Wisdom can't be bought. Wisdom's from God. In 1 Kings 10, 24, we're told that, and all the earth sought to wisdom to hear or sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put on his heart. You see there that God put it there. And the opportunity wasn't just limited to Solomon. Let's jump to the, the New Testament in James 1.5. It promises, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask a God and give it to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Well, it says, if we ask God, he'll give it. Well, Jesus Christ has become for us wisdom of God. If you look in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him are ye in Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, we all have the same promise that Solomon had. We can all have access to that wisdom of God. The answer to how do I get Wisdom is a pretty simple answer on the surface. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. In the Old Testament, if you look at uh, the word fear, it has several different meanings. That word fear can mean this terror and a frightening situation. It can be that fear is a respect for one's master. The fear can be a reverence or awe one feels in the presence of greatness. You see, the, the fear of the Lord is a combination of all of these. It means having a deep respect, a reverence and awe for the power and authority of God. The Bible says over and over um, to the fear of God. 
And through scripture, if you study that, the primary reason we fear God is that's how we serve God. In Psalm 85, 9, it says, his salvation is near to those who, feared him, to, who fear him. Philippians 2.12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Psalm 31.19 says, how great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. You know, I think of this as a child may deeply love his parents, but in most cases, uh, their willingness to obey their parents is rooted in a, hey, I don't want to get in trouble more than it is a, hey, I, I love them with this tender love. Let me give you an example. Picture mom and dad tells Junior, hey, Junior, we're going out. We're going to trust that you stay in the house or stay in the yard. Do not go past that. So Junior says, okay, I can do this. Parents leave. Junior's out in the yard. Billy, the neighbor, comes over and says, Junior, hey, let's go over to my house and play basketball. Junior says, no, I can't do that. Well, why does Junior say, no, I can't do that? Is that like, you know, Billy's agging him on saying, oh, come on, you can do it. Like, hey, like your parents will never know, that sort of thing, right? But can you imagine if Junior looked at Billy and said, hey, I can't do that because I love my parents so much. I can't do that because, um, you know, I, I want to be obedient to them. No, usually... Junior's not going to go over to Billy's house because he doesn't want to get grounded. He doesn't want to be found out. He doesn't want to lose some freedoms that maybe his parents have given him, like the Xbox or some other different things, right? So he realizes there's repercussions for disobeying. And I think that's a lot of times when we think of our relationship with God can be similar, that as children, we have you know young Christians come to God and say, hey, I don't... I don't want to do this because I don't want a punishment for it, right? But that that shouldn't be how that is. That should develop just as a child develops for their parents. They respect and obey their parents because they honor them in the same way that we should respect God and follow his commandments because we want to honor him. You know, fear is the primary reason Christians obey their heavenly father. And that's why I think Solomon said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Rather than causing someone to be afraid of God, a proper fear of the Lord causes someone to love him. And essentially the difference between a fool and a wise person comes down to this. The fool thinks that thinks without God in mind, whereas a wise person thinks, uh, recognizes that God is God and I wanna, I wanna be responsible for my actions because I know who God is. You know, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then the fear of the Lord is not the kind of fear that should make us run away, but rather it's the kind of fear that should make us bow down to the king. And I think that's the kind of fear that overwhelms us, the kind of fear that, that humbles us. And may we be Christians who seek to understand um, God for who he is, not understand God because of who we make him out to be, not understand God because of who our parents want God to be, not God who our country or our nation wants God to be, but may we seek God as he says he really is. You know, in, in Psalm 14, 1, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If you're here tonight, I, 
I honestly believe that that is not a reflection of your heart. What it says in uh, Psalm 14:1 that the fool has said in their, heart, in their heart that there is no God. But I think that foolishness shows itself in many different forms. I do believe that much we're like the little boy who comes home from school on his first day of school, comes home, and he throws down his backpack, kicks off his shoes, and he goes and continues doing the things that he did all summer, all those summer fun activities. And as he's running away to go have some fun and to play, his mom yells out to him, hey, do you have homework for tomorrow? And the little kid says, I have to go back tomorrow? I, I think we can laugh at that child and, uh, and that child who can't understand the, the years of, of education uh, that it takes to, uh, that develops in that process. But some, somehow we think that we can check in with God on the day of a crisis, yet come away with a lifetime of understanding. Right? We think that, hey, that one day of school and we can walk away with all the knowledge we need. Don't we do the same thing? We go to God when only we feel like we need him and say, God, give me everything I need. But we're only seeking him in that crisis. You know, I think wisdom is uh, much like that educational process. In fact, wisdom is the goal of education. It takes years and uh, days after days after days of studying uh, restudying, um, you know, you look at learning new skills, you look at applying those new skills, and it takes time, it takes effort, it takes dedication to build up wisdom. So I want to look at some things that we can do to foolproof our lives. The first one, choose to fear God above all else. You know, God will not give us, give us the fear to fear him unless we want it. We must see this as something that we choose uh, above all else because we know we desperately need it. Another thing we can do uh, for a foolproof life is study the word of God. The more you study the word of God, I think the more that we start to develop uh, the fear of the Lord. And then also have an undivided heart. Psalm 86, 11 says, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. If you look at a divided heart, a divided heart has many priorities. Those priorities are going to be for yourself. Sometimes those priorities shift to others. And then the divided heart says, whatever's left God, I'll live for you. You know, I think hypocrites have a divided heart. But in order to fear God, we need to unite our hearts for one purpose. And that purpose is to live for God. We need an undivided heart so that we can focus solely on God. A God-fearing heart is always a surrendered heart before God. And the first priority when we place God in our lives, that first priority is God in the workplace, God in our businesses, God in our families and our friendships. Everything that we have is putting God in that. And David prayed for, prayed for an undivided heart um, to fear God. And guess what? God gave him one. In order to fear God, we need to have a heart that's fully devoted to God 24-7. You know, I foolproof my life when I live based on the truth that God is God and I am not. Imagine it this way. 
uh, a newlywed couple goes on their honeymoon, comes back, first day back, they're, or week back, they're getting into their routine, okay? And during that week of the routine, it falls Friday. The husband notices the wife getting dressed up, looking nice, and he says, hey, what are you getting dressed up for? And she says, I have a date. And he's thinking, this, I don't know that we have a date. And the date is with another person, right? And I think that when we get married, we're under the understanding that, hey, the woman doesn't date other men and the men don't date other women, right? It's common sense. If you want to stay together, that is, right? But, you know, when we, when we understand that a committed relationship uh, requires making changes in one's life, right? You all on the same page with me here? Right? I, I see some kicking going on. I don't like it, but it's happening. So, you know, when we look at this, we see that, that wisdom asks the same question. Do you understand that being committed to Christ requires us to change our lifestyle? In the same way, when we commit ourselves to our, our spouse, it requires a change in our lives. And godly wisdom will have and use the tools of faith for a proactive journey to prepare us for these days that we have crises, that we have a need of wisdom. The Bible is the written word of God. The church holds the people of God. Well, a godly life is the practical application of the ways of God. A person who invests in reading, a person who uh, attends the local church and applies biblical principles into their life, they're going to learn a lot more about the wisdom of God than someone who is not. I'll give a, a little illustration here of a man named uh, Mahatma Gandhi. If you've never heard of the name, don't worry, I never did either. But I was looking up Mahatma Gandhi, um, an inspirational, or uh, mostly a, a leader in the, the Indian world back in late 1800s, early 1900s, through World War I, uh, ending kind of World War II. But Mahatma Gandhi spoke forcefully to Christians when he said this, you Christians have in your keeping a document with enough dynamite in it to blow up the whole of civilization into bits, to turn society upside down, to bring peace to this war-torn world, but you read it as if it were good literature and nothing else. You know, I think how shameful for a non-believer to understand the power of God's word and we neglect it. You know, I think we can ask, well, will knowledge of God lead to godly actions? James 3 tells us, who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. James is saying that those who are wise among you, they will show it with a good life and with deeds that come in the humility of wisdom. Well, we know what wisdom is. We looked at a man who had an abundance of it, but I want to end here with the question of why do we want it? You know, I think everything that humanity strives after in this world, that type of life is promised in the Bible to those who fear the Lord. 
we think of in this, in this world, people are always trying to gain more wisdom, right? It's one of the things of like, hey, I thought I can just be more wise than someone. Proverbs 1, 7 that we read says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We're all saying, hey, I want a prolonged life. So we all want. We want a long, happy life. I want a prolonged life. Proverbs 10, 27 says, the fear of the Lord prolongeth days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. We say, well, I want to strive after riches and honor and life. Proverbs 22, 4 says, by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Lastly, I think people of this world strive for prosperity. In Isaiah 33, 6, and it says, and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thine times, of thy times and strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. I want to end with this question. Why would Solomon be so sincere to tell his son in the, in the book of Proverbs the value of wisdom and then turn around in the book of Ecclesiastes and tell us how worthless wisdom is? Solomon was saying wisdom is vanity or worthless without the fear of the Lord. Do you get that? He isn't saying Wisdom is vanity. He's saying wisdom without the fear of the Lord is vanity. And when, when we give control of our lives, we're enthroning God and dethroning ourselves. I want to end it with this, as, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. He said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So he's gone through all of these things in the book of Ecclesiastes about wisdom and vanity and all these things. And he said, here's the conclusion of the whole thing. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Okay, well, if Solomon wasn't enough, let's jump back to Job. Job gives the same conclusion in Job 28, 28. And unto man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. I'm going to ask that we look to Deuteronomy 10, 12. And may this be our prayer here tonight. I'll read it. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. And if you'd like any further information about our church, we'd like to encourage you to visit mlbc.church.